Welcome to another in-depth exploration of biblical missionaries, written by Borge Schantz, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 3. The Unlikely Missionary. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Luke chapter 4. Verse 27, New International Version. The books of Kings, covering the history of the kingdoms of Israel from about 970 to 560 BC, record exciting and dramatic events and far-reaching political upheavals touching God's people. Woven in these accounts are the stories of Elijah and Elisha, daring prophets of God whose adventures have gripped the imaginations of children and adults in every age. Also interesting are the similarities between the ministry of Elisha and the ministry of Jesus. In the ministries of both, dead persons were raised, lepers cleansed, and hungry people fed from small amounts of food. This exploration deals with one of these miracles, the healing of Naaman, a wealthy, powerful, and a very proud idolater who, in his great need, came to experience the power of the living God and first did so through the witness of a very unlikely missionary. Among the many spiritual truths that can be found in this account, we can get a model for cross-cultural witnessing in the midst of international tension and rivalry. We can see, too, in this story, a model for how the plan of salvation works. it all. But... Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Second Kings chapter 5 and verse 1, New International Version. This verse contains no fewer than four descriptions or titles that put Naaman in the top echelon of Syrian or Aramean society. He exerted major influence on the king of Aram, was held in high esteem, and was the king's right-hand man in religious as well as military matters. He was also extremely wealthy. However, verse 1 has a major but. All Naaman's power, honor, and bravery paled in light of the most feared disease in those days, 
leprosy. And that is exactly what this poor man had, the major but that cast a dark shadow over all else he had achieved. This ailment, however, brought him into contact with God's prophet, and through that contact, he became a believer in the true and living God. Let's listen to three New Testament stories involving Jesus. Despite the obvious fact that Jesus did miraculous healings in these situations, what is the common denominator in these accounts? What is it that brought all these people to Jesus? Okay, let's hear the stories. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. And the leper came to him, begging him on his knees and saying to him, If you are willing, you are able to make me clean. And being moved with pity and sympathy, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be made clean. And at once the leprosy completely left him, and he was made clean by being healed. And Jesus charged him sternly, sharply and threateningly, and with earnest admonition, and, acting with deep feeling, thrust him forth and sent him away at once. And said to him, See that you tell nothing of this to anyone, but be gone, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your purification what Moses commanded as a proof and evidence and witness to the people that you are really healed. But he went out and began to talk so freely about it and blaze abroad the news, spreading it everywhere that Jesus could no longer openly go into a town, but was outside in lonely desert places. But the people kept on coming to him from all sides and every quarter. Luke chapter 8, verses 41 to 56. And there came a man named Jairus, who had for a long time been a director of the synagogue, and falling at the feet of Jesus, he begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed together around him, almost suffocating him. And a woman who had suffered from a flow of blood for twelve years, and had spent all her living upon physicians, and could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is this who touched me? When all were denying it, Peter and those who were with him said, Master, the multitude surround you and press you on every side. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me. For I perceived that healing power has gone forth from me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came up trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people for what reason she had touched him, and now she had been instantly cured. 
And he said to her, Daughter, your faith, your confidence and trust in me has made you well. Go enter into peace, untroubled, undisturbed well-being. While he was still speaking, a man from the house of the director of the synagogue came and said to Jairus, Your daughter is dead. Do not weary and trouble the teacher any further. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not be seized with alarm or struck with fear. Simply believe in me as able to do this, and she shall be made well. And when he came to the house, he permitted no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. And all were weeping for and bewailing her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing full well that she was dead. And grasping her hand, he called, saying, Child, arise from the sleep of death. And her spirit returned from death, and she arose immediately, and he directed that she should be given something to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had occurred. And Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And Jesus, having returned to Capernaum, after some days it was rumored about that he was in the house, probably Peter's. And so many people gathered together there that there was no longer room for them, not even around the door, and he was discussing the word. Then they came, bringing a paralytic to him, who had been picked up and was being carried by four men. And when they could not get him to a place in front of Jesus, because of the throng, they dug through the roof above him. And when they had scooped out an opening, they let down the thickly padded quilt or mat upon which the paralyzed man lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, their confidence in God through him, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven you and put away. That is, the penalty is remitted, the sense of guilt removed, and you are made upright and in right standing with God. Now some of the scribes were sitting there holding a dialogue with themselves as they questioned in their hearts. Why does this man talk like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins, remove guilt, remit the penalty, and bestow righteousness instead, except God alone? And at once Jesus, becoming fully aware in his spirit that they thus debated within themselves, said to them, why do you argue, debate, reason about all this in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven and put away, or to say, rise, take up your sleeping pad or mat and start walking about and keep on walking? But that you may know positively and beyond a doubt that the Son of Man has right and authority and power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, arise, 
pick up and carry your sleeping pad or mat and be going on home. And he arose at once and picked up the sleeping pad or mat and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and recognized and praised and thanked God, saying, We have never seen anything like this before. Personal life disruptions, tragedies, and transitions can make people more open to spiritual truth and set them on a search for God. Physical, psychological, political, or other disasters can open people up to the reality of the divine. Personal loss, national catastrophes, and wars are major motivators that cause people to seek a power greater than themselves. On one level, Naaman appeared to have it all. On another, he was a broken man without much hope. In what ways are you like that? Having good things and bad things in your life. Would you like to learn how to allow both to keep you connected to the Lord? Unlikely witness. Listen to Second Kings chapter five, verses one to seven. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, accepted and acceptable, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. The Syrians had gone out in bands and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his king, Thus and thus said the maid from Israel, And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel. It said, When this letter comes to you, I will with it have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends to me to heal a man of his leprosy? Just consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. What is going on here? Why would the Syrians even have listened to what a captive slave girl had to say? What might be the hidden implications of what transpired? The Bible gives us no real details of how this young girl acted in the home, but it's clear that there was something about her that caught the family's attention. Think about it. On the word of a captive female child in his household, a wealthy and powerful military leader goes to his king, 
tells him what she said, and then gets permission from the king to go. Even more so, he loads up on gifts to bring to the prophet. Obviously, more was going on than what is explicitly stated in the texts. Nevertheless, God's agent to plant the knowledge of him in the ruling circles of Syria was an unnamed little Hebrew slave girl, cruelly snatched from her home by a Syrian raiding party. Instead of dwelling on the cruelty and meaninglessness of that act and of her life of servitude, she shared her unshaken faith in the life-changing power of God, who was working through Elisha in Samaria. Verse 3. And in this way, just like Daniel and his companions in Babylon she was able to turn her own adversity into a way to glorify God. And thus, God turned her captivity into an opportunity to share her faith. According to Ellen G. White, The conduct of the captive maid, the way that she bore herself in that heathen home, is a strong witness to the power of early home training. You can read that quotation on page 245 in Ellen G. White's book entitled Prophets and Kings. What does this tell you about how your faith, lifestyle, and actions can draw others to you and to the truths that you have been entrusted with? What's fascinating, too, in this story is the reaction of the king of Israel upon getting the letter. Am I God? Can I heal leprosy? His words reveal just how dreaded the disease was and why only a miracle could bring about a cure. For whatever reason, the letter implied the expectation that the king was to bring the cure. He knew that he couldn't do that, and so he thought it was all a trick to instigate trouble. Elisha the prophet. The ministry of the prophet Elisha in the 9th century BC comes to us in a series of 18 episodes extending over more than 50 years. His ministry was conducted mostly as the head of the school of the prophets and was largely public. It included displays of signs and wonders at both the personal as well as the national level. Elisha was a prophet whose counsel and help were sought by both kings and commoners. Second Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 15 says, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were going from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha replied, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. 
So they went down to Bethel. The prophet's sons who were at Bethel came to Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? He said, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. Elijah said to him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. Elijah said to him, Tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood to watch afar off, and the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the waters, and they divided this way and that, so that the two of them went over on dry ground. And when they had gone over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, I pray you, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You've asked a hard thing. However, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they still went on and talked, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire parted the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle that fell from Elijah and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the waters, they parted this way and that, and Elisha went over. When the sons of the prophets who were watching at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. What does this tell you about the calling and ministry of Elisha? No question that Elisha was called of God. He had some incredible experiences that must have confirmed his calling in his own mind. More important, his request for a double portion of the Spirit showed his awareness that for him, to do what he was called to do, he would need divine power because in and of himself, he would be helpless. Even back then, this man of God understood what Jesus said many centuries later. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me 
you can do nothing. John 15, 5, the New King James Version. It's a lesson that no matter our position in the Lord's work, we all need to recognize. Obviously, as we can see from the story of Elisha's calling, this power had indeed been granted to him. Thus, Elisha revealed that he had a healthy and honest understanding of his own role and calling when he declared to the king, Let Naaman know that there is a prophet in Israel. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 8. Also interesting must have been the scene when this military commander and his retinue showed up in all their glory at the door of Elisha's house, probably something relatively small and modest in contrast to the luxury that Naaman enjoyed. Elisha, however, didn't seem all that intimidated by Naaman and his troops. In fact, Elisha did not so much as step outside to meet his powerful caller. Instead, he sent a messenger who gave the military commander a command. The only reward for his long trip from Damascus was the blunt directive to go to the Jordan and bathe. But it was accompanied by a promise. You will be cleansed. No doubt the pride of this important man was hurt. Perhaps, though, that was the point. The Healing of Naaman Let's listen to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. We've already heard the entire story from start to finish, but now let's focus particularly on Naaman's thoughts and emotions. What does this account teach us about Naaman and some of the lessons he had to learn? What do you take from this for yourself as well? Here's the story in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. But Naaman was angry and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and said to him, My father, if the prophet had bid you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much rather then, when he says to you, Wash and be clean? Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, as the man of God had said. And his flesh was restored like that of a little child, and he was clean. Had the prophet Elisha personally met his prominent guest, Naaman, and employed exorcising gestures accompanied by magic formulas and other rituals so common in pagan religions, 
Naaman might not have hesitated, but two aspects of his reception insulted him. Not only did the prophet not personally come out of his house to meet Naaman, but he also directed him to the Jordan River as the place to get his leprosy cured. From the viewpoint of protocol, Naaman was right. Elisha should have left his house to greet him, and the rivers in Damascus were undoubtedly better, since their water was clearer than the muddy Jordans. However, through Elisha, God directed Naaman to the Jordan, a river in Israel. The entire cure process was designed to demonstrate first that there was a prophet of the true God in Israel, and second, that God rewarded believing compliance. Naaman's retinue convinced him to submit to his new divine commander and at least give it a try. Their argument that if the suggested cure had been complicated, he would have endured it, persuaded him. It must have been hard for Naaman to swallow his pride at having to listen to a slave girl, a foreign prophet who showed him little deference, and finally to his own servants. He was, though, desperate for healing. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 14, New International Version. The initial requirements for Naaman's healing were belief and compliance. As soon as he conquered his pride and complied with God's expressed will by bathing seven times in the muddy Jordan, he was cured. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 to 11 in the Amplified Bible says, We were buried, therefore, with him by the baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, so we too might habitually live and behave in newness of life. For if we have become one with him by sharing a death like his, we shall also be one with him in sharing his resurrection by a new life lived for God. We know that our old, unrenewed self was nailed to the cross with him in order that our body, which is the instrument of sin, might be made ineffective and inactive for evil, that we might no longer be the slaves of sin. For when a man dies, he is freed, loosed, delivered from the power of sin among men. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him because we know that Christ, the anointed one, being once raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has power over him, for by the death he died, he died to sin, ending his relation to it once for all. And the life that he lives, he is living to God in unbroken fellowship with him. Even so, consider yourselves 
also dead to sin and your relation to it broken, but alive to God, living in unbroken fellowship with him in Christ Jesus. How does the story of Naaman reflect some of the principles taught in these verses? In what ways have you experienced the reality of a new life in Christ? A new believer. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15, New International Version. In what way do these words help reveal the experience of salvation? Let's listen to three Bible references that may help us answer that question. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand men who had his name and his father's name inscribed on their foreheads. 1 John 5 verses 2 and 3. By this we come to know, recognize, and understand that we love the children of God. When we love God, and obey his commands, orders, charges, when we keep his ordinances and are mindful of his precepts and his teaching. For the true love of God is this, that we do his commands, keep his ordinances, and are mindful of his precepts and teaching. And these orders of his are not irksome, burdensome, oppressive, or grievous. Romans chapter 6 verse 1. What shall we say to all this? Are we to remain in sin in order that God's grace, favor, and mercy may multiply and overflow? It would have been easy for Naaman to return directly from Jordan to Damascus after his healing. However, as a gesture of thankfulness, he and his attendants returned to the prophet's place. This time, they met Elisha in person. The confession that the God of Israel is sovereign in the world is the main theme of the Bible. These words coming from a pagan constitute one of the high points in Old Testament revelation. Naaman's conversion made clear that his new experience had to be tied to the God of Israel. The prophet was Israelite, the river was the most important in Israel, and the number seven was a clear connection to the God of creation. What we see with Naaman is an example of how true faith works. Naaman received something that he could never have earned on his own. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 16 says, Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will accept none. Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. The fact that Elisha refused the gifts was a way of showing how salvation cannot be earned or bought, but is wholly 
of God's grace. At the same time, however, Naaman's willingness to give something to Elisha for what he had done for him shows the response of faith, a response out of gratefulness for what had been given him. Elisha refused the gift. Here he followed the example of Abraham when he helped the pagan kings but refused rewards with the words that no one should be able to say, I made Abram rich. Genesis 14.23, New International Version. Elisha knew that acceptance of a gift would have spoiled the lesson Naaman should learn. The healing was the work of God and an act of sheer grace. Let this point be fully settled in every mind. If we accept Christ as a Redeemer, we must accept Him as a ruler. We cannot have the assurance and perfect confiding trust in Christ as our Savior until we acknowledge Him as our King and are obedient to His commandments. Thus, we evidence our allegiance to God. We have then the genuine ring in our faith, for it is a working faith. It works by love. Those are the words of Ellen G. White in her book, Faith and Works, page 16. If your friends were to look at your life, would they see that it reveals your love for God because of what He has done for you in Christ? continue exploring. Centuries after Naaman returned to his Syrian home, healed in body and converted in spirit, his wonderful faith was referred to and commended by the Savior as an object lesson for all who claim to serve God. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elysius the prophet the Savior declared, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Luke 4.27 God passed over the many lepers in Israel because their unbelief closed the door of good to them. A heathen nobleman who had been true to his convictions of right and who felt his need of help was in the sight of God more worthy of his blessing than were the afflicted in Israel, who had slighted and despised their God-given privileges. God works for those who appreciate his favors and respond to the light given them from heaven. Those insights are from the book entitled, Prophets and Kings on pages 252 and 253. The author is Ellen G. White. 
Here are a few provocative questions to think about. What happened after the healing of Naaman? The next few questions refer to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 17, 18, and 19. In verse 17, New King James Version, Naaman makes a powerful confession of faith, saying, For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. However, right after that, in verse 18, New King James Version, he says, When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. What are the implications of Elisha's reply? To what extent do Christian missionaries have to exercise patience and understanding to new converts, especially when they come from a different religious and cultural background? Ellen G. White, on page 416 of her book entitled The Acts of the Apostles, wrote, The widow of Sarepta and Naaman the Syrian had lived up to all the light they had. Hence, they were accounted more righteous than God's chosen people who had backslidden from him and had sacrificed principle to convenience and worldly honor. This thought leads to another important question. How rapidly should enculturation of new converts take place? Healing and salvation came to Naaman by a faith revealed in his actions. What is the relationship between faith and works? Why is it so important to understand the crucial yet distinct roles both have in the Christian life and witness. AmbassadorGroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.